0: Hi everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity.
1: I'm Anna. And I'm Mel, and today we are thrilled to be sitting down with Nicole Hannah-Jones, an award-winning investigative reporter for the New York Times Magazine and the creator of the Magazine 1619 Project. This project, featuring contributions from Brian Stevenson, Jamel Bowie, and Hannah Jones herself, among others, commemorates the 400th year of slavery in what would become the United States by examining slavery's modern legacy and reframing the way we understand history and the contributions of black Americans to the nation. Even before its launch, Nicole had written extensively about school resegregation across the country and chronicled the decades-long failure of the federal government to enforce the landmark 1968 Fair Housing Act. Hannah Jones is also a 2017 MacArthur Genius recipient and a New America Fellow.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. To get started, we like to ask our guests about an inflection point—a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us?
2: Okay, sure. Um, I think the inflection point that I talk about most is um, would have been about two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. I was working as a newspaper journalist on the West Coast, and um, I was really struggling at that time because I became a journalist because I wanted to write about race and racial inequality, and my editors had other ideas about what I should be reporting on. And at that point, I really was um, so frustrated that I wasn't able to write the stories and do the type of journalism that I got into the business to do that I was considering whether I should leave the profession. Um, it was a very dark time, very frustrating. and. Um, Really, the only reason I stuck it out was I could not imagine what else I would do with myself uh, for a career that I'd wanted to be a journalist since I was in high school, and it really was um, a calling for me. So um, I made the decision that I couldn't leave just because I I couldn't figure out what I would do next and ultimately was able to go uh, to a news organization that allowed me to do the work I wanted to do.
1: So backing up a bit, we wanted to ask um, about your own experience attending public school in Iowa, Mm -hmm. where you talk about being bussed into a largely white school amongst only a handful of other black students. Um, From what age do you think you were aware of those racial dynamics and how did that experience uh, compel you to enter journalism rather than a different form of advocacy or political activism?
2: I was aware um, from the moment I started being bussed, because it was very clear that all the kids on the bus were black. And um, when I was in second grade, which is when I started being bused, they would send a bus that would go all around the east side of town and pick up black kids for various schools. So um, there were kids who were being dropped off at white schools across town from elementary through high school. So the whole bus was full of black kids who were being brought across the river um, to go to other schools. And of course, in the school, we were the only kids who were being bussed in and all the kids who were being bussed into a white school was black. So I uh, saw those differences really early, not to mention I was being bussed from a very heavily black school. So uh, first grade was an almost entirely black classroom. And in second grade, my classroom was not anymore. Um, So as well as the racial differences, there were also class differences. I was bused into the wealthiest school, the wealthiest elementary school in our public school system, and I was coming from a very working-class family, and very working-class neighborhood. So I noticed those race and class differences very early. I mean, just the houses that the other kids who went to the school, and this was their neighborhood school, so you could see them walking to school. Uh, and we rode the bus, and their houses were just really big compared to the houses and the neighborhood was, uh, had a lot more resources. And so I noticed that from a really young age. Uh, And it certainly sharpened my sense of justice and wanting to understand. I I often say I kind of got a, a bus window view of how racial segregation worked. And so even from a really young age, seeing how the literal landscape changed as we went from the black side of town to the white side of town, how everything got nicer, how the roads uh, had less potholes, how there were actually restaurants and places to shop once you cross the river to the white side of town versus my community. I saw those differences, but I didn't know why they existed. And I was very curious to know why they existed, because uh kind of the popular message you got from media was black people just didn't want better and uh, didn't work as hard. But I knew that wasn't true because I saw my own family members and uh, the people in my neighborhood and they all worked really hard jobs. They just worked really hard jobs. They didn't pay a lot of money. So I think that's what really one of the, it was one of the things that led me to start questioning and wanting to understand. And um, I saw both journalism and history as a way of understanding this built environment that I was seeing. Mm
1: -hmm. And when it came to making a similar decision on behalf of your daughter many years later, um, it was actually your piece, Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City, that first introduced me to your work. A professor uh, for a class on race in American cities had assigned it in one of the first weeks, and I was really interested by uh, the personal dynamics that came to play when you were balancing your own values and your desire to contribute to fairness and justice in your own individual way versus the realities of what schools look like in New York City and for people who hadn't read your article could you explore some of those decision making dynamics a bit and I'm curious now that it's been a few years if you think about the choice any differently
2: yeah so uh, that piece is about um, how one can have these views on what we consider our values and um, you know, many people say they believe in equality, uh, they believe in integration, They um, believe that all children are deserving of the same education. Um, and then they have kids. And all of a sudden, they have to actually decide if they're going to live those values or if these were just values in the abstract. And so this piece talks about how my husband and I moved to New York City, which is one of the most segregated and unequal uh, school districts in the country. We live in a poor black neighborhood on purpose and um, our decision of what were we then going to do with our child? Were we going to enroll our child in the type of neighborhood school that uh, I write about in my work all the time, which are very heavily segregated by both race and class, uh, which typically means they are not providing the same level of education as uh, white and more affluent schools? Or were we going to do what many, many i would say most middle class parents do in our situation which is say we value equality and then put our child uh, in a a more advantaged school to use our resources to get our child away from uh, those disadvantaged schools and so the piece talks about our decision to enroll her in a segregated high poverty school and uh, really gets at how um, it's those of us who say we have progressive values who Uh, uphold structural inequality every day with our individual choices and really it was a a piece that was in a very personal way trying to challenge uh, our behavior when it comes to equality and to force us to really confront the hypocrisy of saying one thing and doing another.
0: Yeah I was surprised to hear your remark about your own surprise regarding the number of letters you received in response to the piece um, from other parents telling you that your piece made them rethink their own parenting decisions. Um, And I'm curious, given the further recognition you've received and how um, the elevated platform, how it's elevated the platform for your work, if you still feel less than optimistic about your writing, inspiring change.
2: Yeah, I I still feel just as pessimistic or realistic. so uh, one thing I'll say is that it is good to have low expectations because mm-hmm. then uh, you're not disappointed when people um, don't do the right thing, but you can be pleasantly surprised when people do. <laughs> so I find it uh, when you write about racial inequality and particularly when you look at school segregation, these are some of the most deeply, deeply entrenched societal issues and really no uh, no political home Um you know, white progressives are just as bad on issues of school segregation as white conservatives. And, you know, here we are in California, which is the most segregated state in the country for Latino kids. I'm in New York, which is the most segregated state for black kids. And these are two of the bluest states in the country. So I think it is, um, it it is just, there's no reason to feel a great deal of optimism when writing about issues that uh, no matter, you know, your politics, white Americans are, are largely willing to sustain uh, the inequality. So yes, I was pleasantly surprised by the number of parents who uh, still, I mean, all the time are telling me that they made different decisions for their kids. Um, But it's, you know, drop in the bucket. And it's not large enough, enough numbers to move uh, segregation and to ensure Better opportunities for most black kids. So while it feels great to know that um, there are small numbers of parents who are choosing differently, uh, I always think about, you know, the masses of black and brown kids who are still in segregated schools and receiving an inferior education. So no, I, my optimism is about where it's always been.
1: Um, and then on top of this, dozens of standalone pieces you've written on present-day manifestations of racism and effective segregation, uh, you recently helped launch the 1619 Project with the New York Times, and we're so curious uh, not only about the inspiration for the project but about your role in it and how it became this multimedia project that – of launched with a, a great event in New York City that a couple of our friends were able to go to, and has taken shape with photo essays and feature pieces and as also a podcast. So, if you could talk a bit about kind of how that came together
2: in the shape. Sure. I've been uh, thinking about the year 1619 since I was a high school student, and interestingly enough, it, it's as a high school student, uh, I would have been about 16, 16 or 17 years old. Um, that my love for journalism and kind of the the genesis of 1619 begins at that moment. That's when I joined my high school newspaper and when my uh, teacher, who was a black studies teacher that I had, gave me the book uh, Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett, which is the first time I ever came across that date 1619. And it's literally stuck in my head since then. I haven't been in high school in 25 years, (laughs) but... um, I understood the power, even at that moment, of having gone all of my life without ever hearing this date or about the white lion when every American child hears about the Mayflower and that this erasure of this moment in this history was intentional. So I've thought about what that meant um, for a long time. And as the 400th anniversary was approaching, I just uh, was thinking a lot about how this is such a consequential moment in American history but most children have never heard of it and it was likely going to pass this 400th anniversary with very little acknowledgement and that after the anniversary most Americans still would have never heard of 1619 and I really that was really bothering me and I wanted to do something about it and you know the the benefit of working at the New York Times is when something bothers you know a regular person there's not a lot you can necessarily do about something this big, but at the New York Times, it's you know the biggest journalism platform in the world. So I started thinking, what what could I do to uh, not just commemorate it, but really um, do what my work has always tried to do, which is trace the architecture of inequality. And I've always, uh, not always, but for a long time, I, I've said that. Uh, almost anything in American life can be traced back to slavery, that slavery and the racism that developed to justify it explains so much about our society, but operates largely invisibly because we're very uncomfortable making those connections. And so the idea to have a project where we would take over an entire issue of the magazine and that every essay would tackle a different aspect of modern American life Uh, a surprising aspect, something that most Americans would not think is linked to slavery uh, that crosses American institutions uh, could really be a profound way of uh, commemorating this 400th year, but also really forcing a reckoning about the deep roots of slavery and that we're not free of that legacy. So um, that's kind of the genesis of the idea. But I, I think my Uh, journalism career, I've been working towards this argument for a long time, and this was just an opportunity to bring it to fruition in in a really large way.
0: Yeah, so this piece blends contemporary narratives with an important reframing of American history, Uh, and I'm curious how you navigate your role as a journalist and a historian, especially when you're telling a narrative that's been overlooked for so
2: long. So, um, All of my work spends a lot of time in the past. I use a lot of history in all of my journalism because I think part of the problem with uh, racial inequality and the way that we talk about race today is people just want to pretend that the racial inequality we see just came from, excuse me, came from nowhere and that it wasn't intentional. And because we don't learn, Uh, this history very well, it's very easy to do that. So all of my, I mean, any, anything that I write, I'm usually spending about two thirds of the words in the past and explaining how we got here, because I think that's what then would drive us to do something about it. And um, so that was the thinking with the 1619 Project as well to um, start with an argument, and then really trace That history back. And that history is so important because if I said, you know, um, black people are the perfecters of democracy, I have to provide that history, right? People will reject the arguments that we're making. You cannot reframe the way that we see our modern society without providing uh, really in depth history as to how we got there. So, you know, you want to make an argument about capitalism or healthcare. Um, To me, it's never enough just to say, we have a lot of inequality in our healthcare. Uh, that's not that interesting. Black people are at the bottom of every social indicator of well-being that we can measure. That's not surprising to anyone. We just accept it. But if you can actually show the intentionality of how this was all created, um, and reveal peop- a history that is there. I mean, every you know, clearly everything in the history uh, in the 1619 project we got from reading history, but that's not widely taught. That um, that can be transformative and that's really journalism i think at its um highest is when it can change how you see something when it can change the way you see um the world or the story that you thought you knew and that element of surprise backed up by very deep historiography i think is really what um has led to the success of the project
1: so interesting to see to hear you say that uh Roughly two-thirds of some of your shorter pieces are more than the past and kind of laying out the history, sometimes over and over. When you start a new piece, I can imagine you kind of have to walk your readers through some of the same um, concepts you've already established in other works. And so now that um, your book is coming out this year, which hasn't been released yet. uh, It's not coming out this year. Oh. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, It was supposed to come out this year, and then I pitched this little thing called the 1619 Project, Uh. and so – uh, it is not, but we can. you can ask me about well, the book. Well,
1: then maybe we'll get uh, even, <laughs> even more into the weeds <laughs> of the Tranky process years. of writing, which um, we're so curious when you've covered the to- these topics in depth for so long through short-form writing through now you're doing so many talks and uh, pulling together projects like the 1619 Project. Um, has the book, as you've continued writing it, given you an opportunity to explore certain things that really can't get covered in shorter pieces and what are some of the topics that you're tackling in that
2: project? Yeah, for sure. Um So it's funny because my pieces are really long. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, uh, probably the shortest thing I write these days is about 6,000 words. And on average, my pieces are about 10,000 words, which is long outside of writing a book. Uh, But even with all of the pieces I have done, I mean, I've probably written 40,000 words or so on school segregation across, you know, various stories or maybe even more than that. Um, I always felt like I was never able to really tell the full story. And... Um, that even in a piece that's 10,000 words, there's just so much that you have to leave out. So that was why I decided to write the book on school segregation because I wanted to really give this comprehensive uh, sense of both the history and also just the space to make this really damning uh, argument that I'm trying to make. Uh, And I wanted to trace the struggle for black kids to get an education all the way back to slavery, which none of my uh, prior work has been able to do, I usually can get to, you know, write around Brown v. Board uh, in my articles, and I wanted to go all the way back further because I'm really trying to make the argument that our school system systems were never set up for black kids to compete with white children or to receive a quality education that will allow most black kids. transcend their circumstances and so they never have and you can't really make that argument without going uh, to the founding of public schools in this country and to the denial of basic literacy uh, to black people as a whole Uh, so that's that's really what the book is doing is um, tracing that story from uh, the period of slavery all the way to modern America and showing this kind of unbroken line of the denial of of, uh, quality or even a basic education to black kids.
0: To close out, we noticed that when you were first awarded your MacArthur grant, you were constantly asked how you're (laughs) planning on spending the award. Uh, And now that some time has passed and you've accumulated so many, too many awards for us to list, um, we're curious if that award has changed anything for you or if this new institutional support or, or maybe just a continued institutional support has inspired you to pursue um, any project moving forward? Although we know you're tackling the book. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, you know, it's, it's hard to say the impact that the MacArthur has had. I, for many people who win the MacArthur, uh, these were people who were struggling to get institutional support for their work, mm-hmm. and um, who weren't already, you know, at a place like the New York Times and already making a good salary to do the type of work that they want to do. And I think for them, it's clearly transformative to have that freedom, financial freedom, to really pursue the work that they love. I've been, you know, blessed enough at this point where I was already doing exactly the type of work that I wanted to do. Uh, though I will say. Uh, Getting the MacArthur did definitely gave me uh, the freedom to take an extended book leave, to try to work on my book, to um, get research help, to try to work on my book. Um, And I imagine for other people, this fellowship means a lot in terms of how they think. Because people, you know, mention it every time I give a talk somewhere. Uh, So I think it signals to people outside of me, that um, I have a certain prominence, but um, I'm just the same person as I was before, trying to do the same type of work. And I don't really believe in these outward signals of um, validity because I I just know so many really brilliant people who will never receive any of these acknowledgments, uh, but are just as deserving and their work is just as important. So I just always try to keep very, humble frame of mind about that. And, and, and actually, after I got the MacArthur, I got my small Iowa hometown tattooed on my wrist. It's like a constant reminder uh, of, of where I came from and that all of these things are ultimately not that important um, and to never start thinking too too big of yourself. So it's, it's certainly nice that it uh, signals to people that they should take my work seriously. Um, but... Um, I'm grateful for it, of course. I mean, who's not grateful for that much money, <laughs> um, particularly coming you know, from folks who weren't able to pass on any type of uh, money or wealth to me. But um, I, I really try not to spend a lot of time thinking about these outside awards. I, I worry that it is the seeking of those things that begins to corrupt the true mission of the work that I'm trying to do. And so I'm just happy for whatever comes and whatever doesn't, it doesn't.
1: Right. Well, that's something for all of us to hang (laughs) on to, for sure. Uh, But unfortunately, that's all the time we have left for today. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.
2: Amen to that.